Hello, everyone. This is John Halsman, and welcome to The Culture, where we look at the things that really matter. And we're continuing our look at five, our five cultural sections on albums you must listen to. And the first two of these albums are a response to Jan Wenner, the founding of Rolling Stones, ridiculous comment about his book, a uh, recent book, when asked about his rock biography book and the fact that they were all white men of his age group, uh, Wenner said something incredibly stupid. And as is true with politics, we were saying this about Donald Trump and all the wish casting that went on with the elite about Donald Trump. Watch Neil Ferguson and others scurry back from their neoconservative positions now that they've been found out to be laughably wrong. Um, this happens uh, in the world of pop music, too. Wenner said, well, women and, and African-Americans just aren't articulate enough to include in a book of rock gods. And to point out the stupidity of this comment, and often, again, podcasts are best and when you're provoked by something really, really dumb, uh, and that's the case here, uh, we started with Joni Mitchell and her seminal album, Blue, which is every bit as good as anything the great Bob Dylan did. Um, in his prime. Dylan lasted longer, but in terms of an apex of creativity, I think Blue stands up to anything Dylan did, including things like my favorite, Blood on the Tracks, or Highway 61 Revisited. And in line with this, I thought we'd move on to, to an African-American record that is among the most eloquent testaments uh, to music ever put down. And ironically, Rolling Stone magazine, Jan Wenner's magazine in 2000, said that Marvin Gaye's What's Going On was the greatest album in pop music ever made. And it's really hard to argue with that. It is an absolutely shimmering masterpiece. And for this not to be included um, is something. Marvin Gaye took on the persona in the album. It's a co concept album uh, where one song bleeds into the other, a song cycle, which were popular at the time. People like Van Morrison were doing the wonderful Astral Weeks. The Beatles were doing Sgt. Pepper. Uh, the Zombies were doing Odyssey and Oracle. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys was doing the great Pet Sounds. Uh, the Moody Blues were doing Days of Future Past. These are all ambitious, creative, interesting song cycle records that approximate a pop symphony. But Marvin Gaye's is every bit as good as the rest of these, as he took on the persona of his brother, a returning Vietnam vet, who might as well have come from the surface of the moon, looking at the problems in America from a fresh set of eyes. And this is a record that looks at things like ecological damage before anybody was talking about this, inner city problems, drug abuse, problems with poverty, problems with inequality, problems with the African-American world, problems with Vietnam. And this was an incredibly brave, creative, up-to-the-minute record but because these concerns are universal, Gay somehow made the specific concerns of his brother and himself of the late 1960s, early 1970s, concerns of everyone that have lasted. And that's the trick. Uh, the, there's the record, What's Going On, began out of the Four Tops bass singer, Obi Benson, um, who was watching TV coverage of cops beating up kids in Berkeley in May 1969. And this troubled him greatly. And he reportedly said to his bandmates, what's going on? What's happening here? Uh, and so he wrote the record. The Four Tops were not interested in doing a protest song. This was, this was anathema uh, to Motown, which was all about 
crossover music that that, that appealed not only to African-American audiences, but to white audiences. And the last thing they wanted was a protest song, controversial political song. So the Four Tops passed on the record. And more surprisingly, so did Joan Baez, the doyen of folk rock protest. She passed on what's going on. So kind of in desperation, Obie Benson turned to Marvin Gaye. Uh, who took the song as his own, immediately saw that something was here and began to change and alter the song, adding in the music, changing around the lyrics and going to Barry Gordy, the godfather of Motown, also his brother-in-law, who was really ran everything in Motown. He thought the song was out of date, the music was out of date, and the lyrics were far too politically risky. Um, But Marvin Gaye said an interesting thing. He said, I work best. Uh, when I'm under pressure and when I'm depressed, and certainly what's going on would would, would make that clear. Uh, they released the song, despite Barry's arguing, um, as a single, and it immediately hit the charts. It peaked at number two on the Billboard charts and was number one on the Soul charts. So Barry Gordy, who was commercially minded above all else, ruthlessly said, well, okay, I'll give you 30 days because of the hit of this, to make a record around this hit single. You can make an LP. You have only 30 days, but, and this is the crucial but that matters, and we talk about this over and over again in my own journey, I'll give you the freedom to do it. And when Marvin Gaye heard that he'd get the freedom to not have to fight anyone to actually say what he wanted to say, he leapt at the chance. And rather than it taking 30 days, the record took only 10 business days to produce between March 1st and March 10th. He gets it out. It was recorded, if you count what's going on as a single, into 1970, 1971, and it became Marvin Gaye's 11th studio album released in May 1971 by Tamla, which is the main subsidiary of Motown Records. And the record, despite Barry Gordy's, Gordy's pressuring, proved an immense hit. Um, he, he used, because he had no time, the in-house band, similar to Brian Wilson when he made Pet Sounds using the Wrecking Crew, which was kind of the premier um, L.A. studio musicians of the time while the Beach Boys were out on tour, and he had his own in-house band to make this his own cinematic masterpiece, to be an auteur in kind of French directorial terms, like someone like Francois Truffaut or, or Jean-Luc Godard, um, to, to take this band and make it part of his symphony. And indeed, at the time, Marvin Gaye had been going to the Detroit Symphony um, and expanding really his musical palette at the time. And so he used the in-house band at Motown, the Funk Brothers, uh, to get things done um, at the time. And this was was a very important point. Um, And so he had his own in-house band. He didn't have any aggravation, much as Brian Wilson had the Beach Boys out on tour. His father had been deposed, and he used the Wrecking Crew to make a cinem- uh, symphonic masterpiece. So Marvin Gaye followed kind of in the in this kind of creative footsteps, using the Funk Brothers as his in-house band in this month that Barry Gordy had given him. It's a concept album, again, and the songs bleed into one another with one theme. And the theme, it's a song cycle. The narrative is written from the point of view of a Vietnam vet, returning home, an African-American returning home from Vietnam who might as well have come back as so many vets at the time said, including John McCain, who I actually talked to about this a little bit a couple times, as though they'd been on the dark side of the moon in the jungles of Vietnam. And then they come back to American society with a very fresh and critical 
pair of eyes. And so the point of view of, of the concept album is this Vietnam, African-American Vietnam vet returning home and what he sees. And Marvin was lucky in that he had his brother who had served in Vietnam and written him these horrific letters about the fighting there, talking about coming back into America, re-entering American society, how Vietnam vets were utterly either spit at or ignored and the, and the wrenching effort to kind of reacclimatize himself. But he looks at America from a fresh set of eyes, and this is kind of the narrative hook. And he discusses almost everything that Motown had avoided up until then. He talks about racism and hatred and suffering and injustice and drug use and poverty and Vietnam and ecological issues. All these fundamental issues that plague the African-American community and wider American society as a whole, he forthrightly discusses with beautiful, shimmering, symphonic kind of tones, but bare, spare, bleak lyrics that match the subject matter. And again, it's this a bit like Love, Arthur Lee and Love and their great concept album, as you know, one of my favorites. We've done a whole podcast on them. I might reissue that. If not, do have a look in the back catalog for those of you who are members of the community to what we wrote about Arthur Lee and Love, because it's one of my favorite groups, another African-American, whom really the only other major African-American concept album, uh, Forever Changes. And the mix, again, is a bit like Marvin Gaye's in that they're these shimmering, symphonic kind of sounds coming out. And at the same time, the, the, the dichotomy is with these bleak, spare, sparse lyrics uh, that really address, again, hatred, injustice, suffering, drug use, poverty, Vietnam, and ecology issues. Um, uniquely, this was built around, concept albums tend to be about the album itself, and the singles matter far less. This was even true with the Beatles, where Penny Lane and uh, Strawberry Field failed to be number one, the first Beatle record not to be number one in an eon, even though the LP leapt to number one and stayed there for most of 1967. It was more about the album and less about the single. And that's not the way what's going on works. There were three hit top 10 hit singles coming out of it. First, what's going on, which went to number one um, and number two, uh, respectively, number one on the soul charts, number two overall, which really lays out an African-American coming home and looking at the problems, the mess that was America in the late 1960s, early 1970s, but uniquely from an inner city perspective that had really been lacking in the musical uh, vocabulary up until then. Also, um, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology was a top 10 record and my favorite record on the album. The last part of the album was the last single, Inner City Blues, which just lays out in the, and it's incredibly melodic and wonderful and haunting, um, and lays out in beautifully restrained, angry but restrained lyrics, the problems with living in the inner city. And that peaked at number nine. Inner City Blues, again, I commend all of you, do go listen to what's going on. But if you're going to have to listen to one track, let it be Inner City Blues. Marvin Gaye had already had, I think, the best voice in American pop music, and certainly in soul music. His voice is, is like a, a really smooth glass of whiskey. Uh, for my book, I've just been given very good bourbon by White Fox, my publisher. Thank you, guys. It was very kind of you. Uh, Maker's Mark. Uh, which is my favorite bourbon, and I, I had a glass in honor of our community to toast the book. But what a smooth finish, and that's Marvin Gaye's voice. Good Maker's Mark bourbon, just a wonderful voice that coats everything. But here he put his tremendous instrument to use that it was worthy of, 
by writing and critically for Marvin Gaye, like Brian Wilson, producing a record of seminal value that addressed the specific problems of the late 1960s, but also endemic problems that would plague America moving forward. Injustice in the inner city, racial bigotry, the Vietnam War and the fighting of endless wars, suffering, drug use in the community that's now taken over in fentanyl, e ecological issues, all these things. He's the thin end of a wedge of these things that are a problem for his time, but a problem for all time. And so he takes this wonderful voice, this wonderful instrument. He adds the symphonic approach. He brings in the Funk Brothers, so he has this in-house veteran band, and then he lets the words do the rest of the work. It's Soul Music's first concept album, and among the best concept albums ever made, and indeed among the best records ever made. The historical context to this is interesting. By the end of the 1960s, despite being increasingly successful, Marvin Gaye had just recorded I've Heard It Through the Grapevine, which was an international hit and is now a staple of every oldies channel you've ever seen, including the movie The Big Chill, where it's the, the opening credit, which is wonderful. Wonderful movie and a wonderful song. Um, but even though he's successful, Marvin's in a deep depression uh, for a variety of reasons. His longtime singing partner and muse, Tammy Terrell, um, is diagnosed with a, with a brain tumor. And Marvin Gaye was unique in that he had this, this single solo career and also this duo career with Tammy Terrell, who, who he was his muse. But she, she tragically, in, in, in her very young age, Get, gets a brain tumor and she's to die in March 1970. So he's stunned by this appearance of death and his otherwise. She's a source of stability in otherwise chaotic life. He sees the failure of his marriage to Anna Gordy, the older sister of Barry Gordy. The Gordy family are running Motown. And increasingly, Marvin at the time said he felt like a puppet of either Anna or Barry Gordy uh, being trotted out to sing whatever they wanted him to, but really losing his autonomy and his agency and really what's going on is another way to look at it. It's a declaration of independence for Marvin Gaye. But his, his marriage is failing, and so he's, he's incredibly depressed about that. The, his muse and singing partner is dying, Tammy Terrell. Um, he's increasingly dependent on the cocaine that would come to ruin his life and overwhelm his immense creative abilities. He's increasingly dependent on cocaine. He has troubles with the IRS and paying his tax bill, and he's perpetually ar arguing with Gordy about what to do. Indeed, at one point at this period, he took a gun and threatened to kill himself and was only talked out of it by Barry Gordy's father, his father-in-law. So he's at, he's at the end of his rope, I think is a, th a point. He feels, he said at the time, like a puppet of Barry and Anna Gordy, and he refuses just to keep making music just to suit them and to suit white people's comfort levels. Uh, he refuses with the death of Tammy Terrell to perform on stage for several years. Uh, much like Brian Wilson, he retreats to the studio to be more contemplative, to be more introspective, to be more inward looking. And just as Pet Sounds is, is the wonderful outpouring of Brian Wilson's doing this. So what's going on is, is the result of Marvin Gaye's emotional cre uh, retreat, but creative um, resurgence. Um, again, he took he was moved by his letters from his brother from Vietnam and he took on his brother's persona. As, as the narrative hook that, that unites this together. Uh, again, it was a very loose set of sessions, a lot of drinking, a lot of marijuana. Uh, they did the whole thing in just 10 days. But that looseness with the taut lyrics and the symphonic background, and again, 
Marvin Gaye finding himself as a producer, as an auteur in the kind of French directorial tradition, which had, which was kind of what Van Morrison, Van the Man did with Astro Weeks, Dylan with Highway 61, the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper, the Zombies with Odyssey and Oracle. He becomes the, the mover of pieces, which is what a music producer is, and, and finds a new creativity in that. Uh, and again, he was given 30 days for his freedom, uh, and he did the whole thing in 10. I commend you to listen to what's going on. I think it's certainly one of my top five favorite albums of all time. It has the adventurousness of the late 60s psychedelic scene, the concept album scene, the song cycle scene, the lyrics mattering, which is the link of folk rock. I think next we'll probably do the Birds and Mr. Tambourine Man to make this point. The linking of pop music. Uh, think of the Beatles with Bob Dylan. Look, it's the words that matter, man, as Dylan told John Lennon. Um, and Don't Look Back, the great uh, documentary of Dylan coming to London. It's the words, man. Marvin Gaye is searching for meaning, searching for a way to use his brain, searching for a way to, as an intelligent, sensitive African-American, describe all the tumult in the inner city going on, giving the inner city a voice in the way um, white rockers had adopted concept music to their spiritual concerns. So Marvin, who had reconnected with his Christian spiritualism, of his, of his boyhood does so, but from this inner city perspective, which makes the record quite unique, quite wonderful, and one of the best things ever committed. So Jan Wenner, my answer to you in four words is Joni Mitchell and Marvin Gaye. Please do go listen to what's going on. You will not be wasting your time. And if there's only one track you're going to listen to, please listen to the whole album to get the song cycle version of the album. Please do listen to that. But if there's one track you're going to listen to today, Make it be Inner City Blues, which is everything great about the album. Marvin singing at the top of his game, the greatest voice in American pop music, but now discovering, um, to the surprise of many and maybe even his own, that he's this masterful producer. And he takes the words and lyrics, the spare, sparse lyrics, and produces something uh, with the Funk Brothers that is immortal. And you will not be wasting your time listening to what's going on. Uh, happy to do this one. Happy to talk about the culture as we wade into the year in political risk, because after all, what is realism but a way to save the things that matter? And that's the culture, which is Western civilization. I'm so bored with a generation that doesn't know any history denigrating Western society without knowing anything about it. So my culture section is an unabashed mission to teach these generations all the beauties and wonders of Western civilization, normatively, in my view, undoubtedly, the greatest civilization that ever existed in terms of freeing more people to say more things, economic freedom, political freedom, but also cultural freedom to do more things than has ever happened to any other group in history. And Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is part of that. The freedom to protest the problems of a society to the spare level that we do is a uniquely Western construct, and we should celebrate it. Hope you enjoyed the culture. We'll get back to political rift soon. I uh, just want to say again, please do go out today and buy your copy of The Last Best Hope. We're doing very, very well, uh, particularly well on the UK chart, where we've been in the top 40, to use a top 40 um, on and off all week. And this is without any publicity being done to speak of. We will be turning to publicity on this front in the near future. And the first two dates I'm excited to give you are this Sunday. I'll put them on my LinkedIn for our community. They'll be on our LinkedIn site. Um, 
But we'll have two book reviews out to begin things. Uh, the Washington Examiner uh, will have a book review out this week, and Airmail, that excellent source of news, will have a will have a book out this week. So we're having both the Washington. Sorry, I got it wrong. I knew I would. It's the Washington Times, uh, which I love and read every day. I read both of them, but the Washington Times is first uh, with Airmail. The Examiner one is later, but we'll have those on the site. Tell everyone you know. That the, that the campaign to make the less best hope move the political needle and the cultural needle and begins now, begins this Sunday. It's game time. And please do tell everyone who'd be interested in the last best hope to go out, buy it. And if you haven't written your review yet, please do so. We're off to a great start in reviews. We're beginning to move the needle with Bezos. There are over 35 star reviews out there. I think about 35. I, I haven't checked today, but I will out there now. So please do write a review. Give us the five stars and tell us why you like the book. I've been amazed at how thoughtful the reviews are. Um, thank you for that. They've made me think every single day. I knew our community would do that, but I've been really impressed with the reviews. Thank you for all of you who have supported us. For those of you who haven't, get everyone you know to buy the book. Buy the book today and please write us a review to keep going. But we begin this Sunday uh, with the Washington Times review. They've been great supporters of the book and airmail. And we have nine things coming up and that we will be have the next two and a half months will be devoted to the book, the book, the book. And I will involve you every step of the way as we are in this entirely together. Hope you enjoy Marvin Gaye as we put on our war paint and get ready to move the last best hope into history. Thanks very much.